0: Welcome to the How Leaders Lead Insight Series, and I have to tell you, today we have a very special discussion coming up. It's a conversation about work-life-family balance. Now, I got inspired to, to do this episode after reading my good friend Indra Nui's book entitled My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future." Now everyone knows that Indra is the, the former chairman and CEO of PepsiCo and Indra and I both worked together uh, before she became chairman and CEO and before I became chairman and CEO of Young Brands. We were both a part of PepsiCo and, and we loved it and, and we had a lot of great times together and I admire her very much. I, I saw her firsthand in action and she is absolutely fantastic as a leader. And as I thought about it, I thought it'd be fun and insightful to hear how we both think about work, family, and diversity. And uh, with Indra, obviously coming up the ranks as an Indian female and me doing the same as a a white male. I've asked my daughter, Ashley, a a working mom with three incredible children, if I do say so myself as a proud grandfather, uh, I've asked her to join us and conduct the interview so that we could get a different and I would say current perspective on this important issue. So let's get started with our conversation. Indra, thanks for joining me and congratulations on your outstanding book. I I love the title, My Life in Full.
1: David, thank you for having me on this podcast. And I have to tell you, I was so excited about doing this because Ashley is going to be interviewing me. And to me, this is the best thing that could have happened.
0: (laughs) Great, great. Well, you had the idea, so I'll give you the credit. Let's turn it over to Ashley.
2: Well, thank you, Indra. And thank you, dad. I really appreciate this opportunity. I do feel like my life is very full. I'm so curious to explore this topic and this is going to be fun. And Indra, I loved your book. I couldn't put it down over the last three weeks as I was trying to find moments to read it and pick up chapters. The first thing I have to ask you, that cover is absolutely beautiful. That picture of you. What are you thinking in that picture?
1: So this is that picture of me. I struggled with for a long time. Annie Leibovitz, the great Annie Leibovitz, uh, shot that picture, and it, it lasted two days. The shoot, sixteen hours, and she must have shot about two thousand pictures. <laughs> but she gave me this picture as what's going to be on the cover, and uh, it had a hairstyle for me that I'm really not used to—little disheveled hair and sort of little bit of wisps on the ha- on the on the forehead. And I was worried because it looked like I'd forgotten to comb my hair. But in reality, she was trying to get some movement out of my hair. And I showed that picture to my mother who says, well, why didn't you comb your hair? (laughs) That was her first reaction. (laughs) But you know what is interesting? Annie has now taught me that having my hair perfectly coiffed that looked like a wig is not the greatest look. You have to create a little bit of movement in the hair in order to give yourself a more sort of trendy look. So I'm now trying to be cooler in my old age by creating <laughs> this myself.
2: <laughs> well, it's absolutely beautiful. So thanks for sharing that story. Can you tell us a bit about why you wrote this book?
1: You know, I never intended to write a memoir. That was just not in the cards. I was going to write a series of policy papers and what it's going to take to uh, grease as kids for women to ascend to positions of seniority in companies. Because people kept asking me why I didn't replace myself with a woman. And that made me think about why didn't a woman bubble up to the top when I was at PepsiCo? I yielded a lot of women to other companies, but why didn't they wait around to be CEO of PepsiCo? And then I realized that the pipeline was broken. A lot of the women came into the workforce and then quit the second or the third level in the company because they couldn't balance motherhood and being in a very intense job. So on the one hand, I knew we had to do something for those women in managerial jobs. On the other hand, a lot of the frontline workers, the essential workers who are young family builders also, struggled during the pandemic to come to work being caregivers, nurses, teachers, you know, working in retail or hospitality, but they didn't know who was gonna take care of the children because the care system was completely shut down. So we had this dual problem, both with the essential workers and with managerial workers. And I realized we had to do something to develop a strong care infrastructure. For all of these people. So I was going to write a set of policy papers, but I was told nobody would read the policy papers because they're boring by themselves unless I use the arc of my life to inform the policy papers. So this is a non-traditional memoir in that there isn't a whole bunch of tell-all stories. It's more the arc of my life, lessons leading to the moonshot, which is how do we develop a care infrastructure?
2: You have a really interesting moment in your book that I just wanted to ask you about. Can you tell our listeners about the evening that you came home to tell your family that you would be the next president of PepsiCo? Can you share that story with us?
1: Yeah. So let me draw the lessons from the story also. I came home late in the night and I just wanted to share the news with my family that I was going to be president of PepsiCo and on the board of directors. And there was my mother waiting on the top of the stairs saying, I don't want to hear any news. Just go and get some milk. And I go, why me? You could have asked my husband, who seems to have been here much earlier. Oh, he looked tired. You go get the milk. So I went and got the milk and I sort of was upset with her. Why don't you let me share great news with you instead of saying, go get the milk? And she said to me something which I've never forgotten. She said, when you enter the house, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're a daughter, daughter-in-law. Leave your crown in the garage. I don't want to hear about president or board. I don't know what that is. Leave the crown in the garage. Now I'll be honest with you Ashley. At that moment I was pissed off because my point is let me enjoy my few moments in the sun. Just let, let just listen to me and enjoy my uh, uh, you know news. But then she was also telling me that you've got to be humble because when you're at home you and your husband have a very different responsibility than what you have to the company. So she was giving me a lesson in humility, priorities, and basically saying, don't try to come into the house and think all of us work for you. We don't. Your mom, he's dad. Play those roles when you come into the house. It was a tough lesson, but I got it.
0: That's funny, Indra, because when when I come home, Wendy always tells me, she says, you're not CEO around here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What she's telling you is leave the crowd in the garage. I love that, that's a great phrase. (laughs)
2: So let's talk about work life balance. I mean, is this a real thing? Is this a real term?
1: I don't think so. I, the word balance is what I worry about. I think it's juggling priorities. Because, you know, you start off the day saying, today I'm going to focus on my work, and in the evening I'm going to go home and do something. And then during the day you get a call from the school Oh, one of your kids fell and sprained an ankle, or they're not feeling great. All of a sudden your priorities have gone to hell because you've got to juggle the day again. So I think. Work-life, balance may be a tough word, is juggling all priorities related to work and life. Now, let me say one thing, though. There's one good thing that came out of COVID. It's technology development. We now have access to Zoom and Teams and all of these teleconferencing tools, and our cell phone has become so much more advanced. We can FaceTime, we can text, we can talk to our kids all the time. So unlike when David and I were coming up in the corporate world, where there weren't these technology tools. You had to be present. You had to travel. Now you can actually do a lot of things remotely. I would have killed to have come home at 3.30, taking my kids off the school bus, spent an hour or two with them, and then continued working at home. That luxury was not available. One had to travel. One had to go meet people. I couldn't prioritize not traveling versus traveling. And so I think that in my time, work life juggling was impossible. I think in today's world, it's much more possible.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's been so interesting to see how much I've gotten to know my coworkers' families better and how I've experienced being <laughs> on these Zoom calls. You see their kids pop in and out. Um, And there's permission for that, I almost feel like now, because all of us were trying to educate our children at home while we were also working. And so there seems to be more permission to know and to have your family involved in your work.
1: Very, very true, except that what we cannot allow happen is for uh, the mother in particular to be so stressed out because they have to do so much. And they're always begging for, you know, internet time or broadband access because everybody's on the web doing their respective jobs. So we have to make sure we also create structures to de-stress mothers and women in particular so that they're not just completely sort of zonked out at the end of the day because they've been handling five priorities all through the day, and there's no safe spot for them to go and just focus on the job or whatever. So we have to think about future of work very, very differently.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'd like to kind of jump into talking about family because that was such an important part of your book. And I know you both are family people. You love your families. They're viewed as your favorite accomplishment. So can you set the stage and tell me a little bit about your immediate family?
1: Well, you know, I grew up in a very tight-knit family. I grew up in a, a conservative family, a family that believed in discipline, a family that gave me a very nurturing environment to grow up in, and a family where... They believe that the girls and the boys should be equally educated and allowed to soar. So we were not discriminated against, which is very unusual. Uh, The other good thing is I'm married to somebody who believes that he's an equal partner in the marriage. So we both contribute equally to caring for the kids, household duties, everything. Uh, And I've married into a family where the family, my in-laws all believe that I should be allowed to work. So nobody has held me back. Uh, And then I look at my own family, uh, between my husband, my kids, uh, they're my life. And between my mother, my in-laws, they've all helped take care of my kids. So this has been a multi-generational family structure, and everybody has intergenerational responsibility to help all of us succeed. And I think of all the things I've done in my life, I would say my family is my biggest uh, success uh, that I feel good about. Now, it's not without it's challenges, don't get me wrong. When you have two daughters, there's always a challenge. But, uh, really? <laughs> <I> <laughs> you know that. Don't you? <laughs> oh, boy. And yeah. you know, mom's always the punching bag. Mm-hmm. And uh, so having two daughters uh, who are both vocal, mom is a punching bag. That's been interesting now and then. Some of our dads get a buy. I don't know why, but moms <laughs> are the punching bag. So oh, I, went- I, got, I, got a, I got a load of that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you had a son, if it would have been a different experience as well.
1: I think so. I think there would have been a little bit less punching bag uh, behavior, yes. but that's okay. I still love my kids more than anything in this world.
2: Oh, for sure. <laughs> dad, can you talk a bit about your upbringing and how it shaped your perspective about work?
0: Well, you know, my mom and dad are 92 and 91. Uh, so I'm really blessed to have, you know, them still in my life and just saw them in in Scottsdale this past uh, weekend, which was really great. But I, I grew up in a, a very unusual environment. I actually grew up uh, in, a, in a trailer. My dad was a government surveyor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved every four months. My mom would check me into a school and say, hey, David, we better make friends because uh, we're leaving. And uh, that was the case. But I lived in small towns up and down the, the United States and lived in 23 states by the time I was in the seventh grade. And but I always had uh, uh, just so much love for my mom and dad. They they taught me how to love and respect the family. I had two sisters, and and Indra. When we uh, get together as a family, no matter how big the house is, the biggest house we had when we grew up was eight feet wide by forty six feet long. We sit in the same sofa, clumped together, hugging each other. So we're really <laughs> a, a close knit knit family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was very, uh, very blessed to, to, to have the, the upbringing that I have. I, people always say, how could you how could you have lived in that environment? You know, and I always tell everybody I succeeded uh, uh, because of my environment, not not in spite of it. It was it was, I think, one of the best things that that ever happened to me. My my mom and dad wanted me to live the American dream. I was the first kid to go to the go to college in our family. And, uh, you know, thanks to a lot of great mentors and people who took me under their wing, I, I've been able to live that American dream.
1: And David, you're one hell of an American dream, because I think going to so many schools made you become more social and more resilient. And that's the David that I've seen and I've enjoyed interacting with, but you're raising a much bigger issue, which is the importance of families. Families are needed for young people. And in today's world where, you know, families are fragile, families are messy and people don't have, you know, the traditional families around them. How do we recreate social infrastructures and communities so people can help each other out. Yeah. It's a big discussion we need to have at some point.
0: Yeah, and you're you're so right, because you know, if you have a mom and dad that loves you, you're so far ahead of the game. You know, and and I know Ashley feels blessed that she had Wendy as a mother and and hopefully me as a father. And 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 you know, we're <laughs> you know, just having an only child. You know, we've just done everything together. I think having that infrastructure, I I always say, if if you have a great mom and dad and you're born in this country, at least you have a chance. You know, you have a chance to succeed and and grow. And my mom and dad, I have to tell you, to this day, along with Wendy and Ashley, they're my biggest, they, they cheer for me all the time, you know. I can go on Squawk Box and they'll call me and say, oh, my mom will say, you look so handsome. Your tie was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And you're so smart. I go, I don't know if I am or not, but thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but David, there are so many single parent families. There are so many families where, you know, things are not as rosy as they could be. The real question is, how do we create community structures that allow those young people to have family-like relationships in society within communities, either through libraries, civic centers, park benches, whatever, so that they too can feel supported and they can feel like they can go to somebody for love and affection and and, uh, reinforcement.
0: I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that, you know, Ashley leads is, you know, our our Lift a Life Foundation. And, you know, we focus on helping elementary school kids get their self-esteem. A lot of times they don't get it home. You know, like understand what their super talent is, their talent is, put their heart into it. That becomes their superpower. And then, you know, in high school, we have this program called Lead for Change. And it's all about teaching people how to take people with them, understanding their background, what's, you know, their life, how it's impacted them. And giving them the encouragement that they need to, to, to go forward to make a difference in, in the community. And I, I think we've, we've all got to be looking for ways to build the self-esteem of people and help people uh, you know, really understand that they've got the capability to, to grow.
1: And I think in today's digital world where everybody's cocooning, how do you get them out of their cocoons and actually come out to these places where people meet socially, you know, libraries, park benches, parks, barber shops restaurants. The, how do we get people to sort of interact with each other and talk to each other? There's a big, big uh, need that's uh, uh, you know really we should take advantage of.
2: Yeah, Indra, another thing I just really appreciated about your book is how you continuously revisited the family structure and the support that women need to be able to to work and, and earn a living for themselves. Because a lot of what I've done with our work with the Family Foundation has been around early childhood education. The majority mm-hmm. of brain development in children happen from birth to age five. And so that's just a critical time in a child's life. And so it's really important that we provide support for early childhood education. And a lot of that support is around building high-quality childcare system that's supportive of working families, where those... People that are working in those childcare centers are equipped to to deliver just a strong, solid environment and education to those children that they serve every day. So it's a really important issue.
1: Well, I agree with you, and we have to pay them right. I mean, yes. the one thing that surprised <laughs> me was that many childcare workers get paid less than grocery store clerks, who themselves are not paid too well. And then many of them take jobs after their childcare jobs in another shift. Right. Uh, that's, a, that's a tremendous price to pay. And these are people taking care of our most vulnerable little babies. And so I think that we ought to rethink the whole childcare infrastructure. We have an opportunity to create ubiquitously available, high-quality, affordable childcare systems in whatever structure we choose to put it in, whether home care or center-based mm-hmm. care. But I think we really have to think about this. Otherwise, I don't know how we can deploy the smartest women in paid work to get the economy moving.
2: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a really important topic, and I'm glad I'm hearing more and more people talking about it, and I hope it continues.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. I think we need your voice too, Ashley, for to the next generation. <laughs>
2: I'm trying, I'm trying. I've been uh, talking Keep doing it. talking about this for, for the last 10 years, but now finally I feel like, especially with all the American recovery money that's coming to cities, cities are having these conversations. So.
1: And it should be spent wisely. It Very. needs to be spent wisely. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's philanthropy cannot do anything with the amount of money that we have compared to that influx. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I agree. I want to get back to your upbringing just a little bit more. I'm really interested, particularly in what your mother's taught you about work.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, It's my grandfather, my mother and father, the three of them together. Mm -hmm. I watched a mother work all the time. You know, she was always busy at home. Uh, She was not a mother who hugged you and said, I love you. I love you. None of that stuff. I mean, she barely had time to talk to us because she was always cooking and cleaning and catering to the elders. Um, I don't believe any of us in that time of growing up had appears in other families where the mothers or fathers hugged them and said, I love you. So we didn't grow up being told, we, uh, I love you. We just assumed they loved us to pieces because, you know, they did everything for us. So we knew they loved us, implicit love. Um, it was an upbringing where, you know, my mother would make us do things like at dinner time uh, when she was having her dinner and we had finished, she'd say, give me a speech about what would you do if you're the prime minister of the country, or the chief minister of the state, and then at the end of dinner, when we gave her the speech, she would pick a winner. It was never, you know, last yesterday it was your sister, today it's got to be you. There was no, uh, you know, one day uh, each of you will get the prize. The best speech got the prize. And this prize was a tiny, tiny piece of chocolate. I mean, tiny. You could barely see it, okay? But then when you were given this piece of chocolate, you licked it for hours because you, it meant something. Today, you give me a bar of chocolate, a gigantic bar of chocolate. It doesn't taste as good as that tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny bit of chocolate. So, you know, she, in, in a funny way, she made us be aspirational. She made us think about being bigger than we could ever be, we ever aspire to be. At the same time, she said, however, I'm going to get you married at age 18. Mom, how is this going to work? But, you know, this is a societal pressure versus her own dreams for her daughter's. And she played that role with great aplomb, I must say. She's still around. I'm blessed on that.
0: My mom was always my my coach. I mean, she, you know, when I had anything that was important at school, whether giving my first speech on idealism of America, she coached me through it and worked with me on wow. it and uh, was right there with me. and. I remember her being there when I was crying when I didn't win. And uh, she still thinks oh. I should have won to this day, you know, but she,
1: oh but, God. but, uh,
0: <laughs> but, but my mom, uh, she, she's a very hard worker. And, you know, I, I always would see my mother actually when I would go out in the restaurants because I would see people who were so committed to what they do. And, and, yeah. you know, my mom, and we moved to Kansas city after living in all these small towns, you know, my my mom and dad needed to become dual income, uh, winners, and so my mom did things like uh, she was the Avon salesperson in the in the, uh, mm-hmm. the neighborhood, and then she uh, ran uh, the bookkeeping for a small company, and then she ended up being a controller of of another another mm-hmm. small company, and she's totally self taught. But I always felt my mother, if she would have had the, the the education, the training that I had, she could end up running a, a company as good as my father. But it's just you know I had the the breaks of of having them to help me kind of move forward and 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 begin to uh, achieve.
1: You know, David, listening to you talk about your parents makes me emotional because you know they work their way through whatever they're doing to give their children a better life. And your sisters kept you uh, grounded. It, absolutely.
2: Oh. <laughs> I wanted to kind of get back to talking just about your early years, because I'm really curious as I think about my daughters and I think about the way we talk about careers. What were your dreams for your career when you were younger and your family? Not just your career, but your family. Did you have any idea of what you wanted?
1: You know, actually, everybody in my family worked in a government job or a bank or were lawyers. So this notion of business didn't exist in our family at all. When my sister went into business school, She wrote the entrance exam on a lark. She didn't think she was going to get in and nobody thought she was going to get in. She just wrote it because it was such an unattainable uh, seat. Uh, She wrote the exam. She got in into one of the most prestigious schools, which sort of blew everybody away. But now put the pressure on me because she's a year ahead of me. We were intensely competitive. If I had not written the entrance exam for the other school and gotten in, people would have said, she's a success and Indra is a failure. So the only reason I wrote that business uh, entrance exam was because I had to keep up with my sister. Fortunately, I got in and the rest was history. But I have to tell you, uh, she was the real brains. And she's the one that changed the trajectory of our thinking to say there's something called business. And I don't believe I sat down anytime and said, I'm going to be CEO of a company because I didn't know what that meant. It was always let's do the job. We're doing very well. The next one will come about. Let's do the job. Well, something will happen in the next job. So it was never a question of plotting the arc and saying in five years, I've got to be uh, a, you know, a senior vice president, 10 years, an EVP. Those were just impossible because we didn't know what that was.
0: Yeah. You know, um, uh, for, for me, uh, I really found out what I loved at at the University of Missouri, where I fell in love with advertising and and marketing. And once I found that, I knew I wanted to get in. And and I was just like you, Indra, had to get a job. My first job, I was a copywriter in a small advertising agency. And and it was sort of like, that was it. That got me started. Then I looked at like, what was the next job? And what was the next job? The next job. And the next thing I know, somehow I ended up CEO of Young Brands. But it just was a constant progression of pursuit, of learning, and and trying to to get better at whatever we do. Indra, did you have any vision for how many kids you'd have or what your family would be like in addition to your job?
1: No. I knew I wanted to get married and have kids, but I didn't have any uh, vision or a plan to have two kids or three kids or whatever. You know, I would have liked to have had more kids, you know, because I I love kids, but then I was in a car accident and all that stuff, so a lot of things got delayed. You know, but also coming back to what you were saying, David, in every job that you did, you excelled. You worked at that job and you excelled at it. And that gave you the right to go to the next job. So, you know, you have to demonstrate excellence in the job you did, including at parenting. You know, having my two kids is a bigger test. Uh, and so, you know, whether you want to have more kids or not, you've got to pass the test with your first two kids. And I'd say 50% of the time, they'll say, great mom. The other 50% they'll say, mom, come on. She was not even there. So it depends on the time of day that you get them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious as we move on in the conversation, just to talk about the early years when you both had young children. I mean, did you feel the pressure to do it all?
1: Of course, all the time. But because I had Raj and we sort of divvied up all our responsibilities equally, Ashley, we would sit down with our calendars and plan out the next three months, six months, which family member are we going to import from India on a vacation for three months to help us out and then go back. Those days, were, it was very tough to get visas and all that stuff. So we sit down and, and plan these days and months and years very, very carefully. And if at any point in time, both of us were uh, not going to be home or one of us was not going to be home because we made a commitment that one of us will always be home every night. And if at any point both of us were going to be away, we made sure that a family member was at home. It required a lot of planning, mm-hmm. a lot of planning. And because we couldn't talk to the kids face-to-face, it had to be through landline telephones those days, if you even know what it is. Um, <laughs> I do, I You do. know, you had to, you do. We yes. had to plan life very, very differently, very differently. And, um, you know, somehow it all worked out. But my hope is that this next generation doesn't have to struggle as much. So I think my own commitment to my kids is, I know what I went through. I know everybody wants, I want grandkids, you want kids. So whenever you choose to get married and have kids, we have to make life easy for you, not go through what we went through.
0: It's interesting, you know, when we got married, uh, Wendy told me we'd never have children because she was a diabetic and she didn't think it was possible. Uh She's a type one diabetic. But after nine years, she said, David, I want to have a baby. I said, well, you can't. And and she says, oh, I've been to the doctors and we think we can give it a try. So she, you know, she got pregnant and, and, uh, you know, after six months, she was like bed rest. Um, and at that point in time, I had to take over a lot of things in the household. And for the, I think that was when it really hit me my gosh, she's been working as a sales representative for a television station, doing a great job, picking up the laundry, picking up the, you know, the groceries, doing the bulk of all the stuff that really ran the the household, and now all of a sudden I was doing all of that. And it and it really opened my eyes up to to just what a working mother has to has to go through. Uh and, you know, all the stuff she was doing. And I think from that point on, I became a heck of a lot better because I was more empathetic with everything that she was going through. And, uh, you know, I, I always really counsel everybody to, to, to make sure that you divide the responsibilities and that, you know, uh, the tasks are not male and female. They're family tasks that need to be shared.
1: I think that's a very important line, David. I think when we start talking about kids and all that stuff, we've got to make sure people realize it's family, not female. Very important line, um, and I have to tell you, there was one time in my life early on where I took ten days off, and I said, "I'm just going to stay home, not work, and see what it's like to be, uh, you know, a, a mother at home full time." In two days, I was exhausted, <laughs> exhausted. There's so much work, and you're on all the time, and there's no break. You know, you find things to do: clean the house, organize this, organize that. You're driving all the time. You're the driver. You're the organizer you're the cook the cleaner you're everything so i think we all owe a debt of gratitude to mothers at home Uh, especially mothers who don't work outside the house they don't have a break from work we really owe them a debt of gratitude and so you're right david yeah you're right i fully agree with what you're saying
2: yeah i think it's really interesting that you did that sit down ahead of time because I feel like that's my Sunday night ritual is getting out our whiteboard and planning out what our week will look like. (laughs) But it, it helps me maintain some mental health, I think, knowing that everyone's cared for. So I think these conversations with your spouse are really important How did you all intentionally um, build alignment with your spouse around these roles and responsibility? I mean, was that a conversation you had early in your marriages or was it something that developed over time? And what advice would you give to us about how to do that?
1: Pick your spouse very carefully because many times you end up falling in love with somebody, you marry them without really knowing how you're going to navigate life. You think love will carry you through life. Sometimes it does, but in many cases it doesn't. And so I think it's important that upfront you have the conversations on, I intend to keep working. Both of us are going to contribute to creating wealth for the family. We have to make sure we understand that families are fragile. And we have to make sure both of us have the economic means to keep this family going. Uh, And it means you're going to have to contribute to childcare, not just money, time and effort. And we both have to address adversity together and the joys together. And you've got to make sure either family does not interfere. You know, the the, the parents of both husband and wife don't interfere in that discussions. Because in many Indian families, in particular, actually, um, the boy's parents don't like to see the daughter-in-law working. So in my case, I had the opposite. I had in-laws who said, let's support her. We're so proud of her. her. Let her keep working. And they were my biggest, biggest tailwinds. So I think it's important that you have these conversations. David, I don't know if you and Wendy had these conversations before you got married or you just assumed.
0: I think we've had love carrying the day for a while until we really (laughs) got into our jobs and our, our careers. And, and, and then, you know, Wendy was, she made a lot more money than I did early on in the career. And then she had health issues and we had the baby at Ashley. And then all of a sudden she's going to stay at home and, you know, and I think we worked our way through the process. But my, my feeling is, Indra, is that, you know, marriage, life, it's, it's you know, you're with your is it's sort of like being on a teeter-totter. You know, you're never 100%, you're never equal, you're never really balanced. There's always somebody that has to give more as things go up and down. And I think that what you want to have in a, in a marriage is, is that sometimes you're going to have to give more than the other person and you just do it because you know you have to. And you want the other person feeling the same way. And, and I think that's how Wendy and I have basically stayed together uh, over the years. And she's had a lot of uh, challenges. and But together, we've always been in there to support Ashley every way we could and to support each other uh, with whatever health issues that we have.
1: Well, David, beautifully put. I think if both people in the marriage stay committed to each other and the kids, okay, in the family units, stay committed to it. And stay committed to the fact that you work your way through adversity. It works out fine. When you see, uh, you know, breaking up as an easy way out. I think that's when things get messy.
2: Indra, you mentioned earlier, just kind of talking about some of the um, standards that are put on women and the responsibilities. I was reading your book, watching a softball game in between softball games for my daughter's tournament. And I had this mom come up to me and she looked at your book and she was like, oh, I've been wanting to read that. She goes, "Does it all address mom guilt?" And I can't tell you how much I have <laughs> women talk to me about mom guilt. You know, some story about how bad they feel about this or that. Can you tell me, do you think mom guilt is like a real thing and how did you
1: combat it? I didn't combat it. I lived with it. Yeah. I think we have a perfection gene. It's not just guilt we have a perfection gene. We want to be the best mom. We want to be the best wife, the best executive, the best everything. And it's not possible because they're all full-time jobs. So in the course of juggling, we're actually making trade-offs. And with every trade-off comes a twinge of guilt. So you live with that all the time. It takes real effort to dump that guilt. And, you know, if your chocolate chip cookie delivery to school is not perfect when it's your turn to do cookies, you feel guilty. Right. Forget it. A chocolate chip cookie, whether it's round or shapeless, still tastes like a chocolate chip cookie. We have to forget all this and go, "Hey, it tastes good. Eat it." All right? <laughs> Instead <we> go, <laughs> so, I think we have to let go of the perfection gene and, you know, sort of make life easier for us. And, you know, I'm going to come back at something. Ashley. I think our sisterhood has to get stronger. Women have to form strong sisterhoods where we tell each other, it's okay. Just don't worry about it. You deliver chocolate chip cookies, right? Half of them look like Australia or South America. (laughs) Doesn't matter. As long as some looked round like the world, that's all that matters. They all taste good. It's a lesson in geography that the kids got. Don't worry about it. You have to find humor in everything you do. Otherwise, the guilt overcomes. It takes, takes you over. But men also go through guilt, believe it or not. They just don't talk about it.
2: Right. I mean, that was my next question for dad. Did you ever feel guilty? Did you ever envy the female role?
0: Well, I've always been a person that wanted to be two places at one time. You know, it's like if I was out of town doing something, I Mm -hmm. wanted to be home. You know, and and it's like I've always had that pulling, uh, uh, that tension throughout my life.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, that tug is what causes guilt, ultimately. I think if people like you, men in in the halls of power, uh, can say, we're going to support women. We're going to make sure they're not treated differently. We're going to make sure that if we spot unequal treatment, we're going to nip it in the bud, the world would be a better place. And I think women in particular won't have um, the burden of being treated differently at work and carry that home. Then you feel even more guilty. Why did I go to the office when I'm treated like shit and I come home I think you always have to look at it through the lens of would I want my daughter or wife to go through these experiences that other people are going through? And if the answer is no, change the environment. So we've got to make men in power, people like you, to stand up and say, we're gonna stop this unconscious bias at work against yeah,
0: women. I, I agree. And you know, things happen when you have female executives on your team. You know, it's like I remember coming to YUM one day and uh, Ann Byerline, our chief people officer, says, hey, I want you to come down and see something. And, you know, I'm really proud that she did this, but she created the daycare center, you know, and we went in there and she did this. But you know what? I have to be honest, wouldn't have been on my top 10 list of something that I would have personally done. But she knew it was needed. She took ownership of it. She made it happen. Okay. and and I talked to Tracy Skeens, who runs our uh, HR function at, at Yum. And, uh, you know, we have baby bonding now, four weeks vacation as soon as you hit the door. You know, these are things that, you know, wouldn't have been necessarily top of mind for me. But I think when you have that female voice in your company that's strong and really uh, will make the statement, you start doing the things that you need to need to have done. So, you know, maybe it wasn't top of mind for me, but I have a great appreciation and empathy for, you know, the importance of having women in positions of power to make these things happen.
1: And I think we have to put families, family builders, women into the core of all these discussions, not keep them fringe. And we have to bring empathy and humanity into the workplace and decision-making.
2: I'd love to talk about work a little bit now, because I feel like we're we're headed in that direction. Indra, in, in 1994, there were no female CEOs at Fortune 500 companies. And honestly, I don't know how many women actually recognize that stat. You know, I I read it and I was like, that's that's crazy to me. And then I kept seeing on Google, you know, the press just screaming about how we had 41 female CEOs at Fortune 500 companies in 2021 and two of them were black women. And the press was acting like this was such an accomplishment. I look at that and that doesn't feel like much progress. So (laughs) really, what do you think it's going to take to get more women into the C-suite?
1: Uh, Two or three things. One, we have to develop the pipeline. We have to make sure women stay in the workforce. Women are wicked smart. 70% of high school valedictorians are women. More than 50% of the top grades from colleges are from women. In STEM disciplines, women have one whole point of GPA more than men. Women are getting more professional degrees. Women are hungry. They want economic freedom. They want the power of the purse. So we have this wicked smart talent pool at a point when we want the best and brightest to be working in our uh, paid jobs so the country can move forward. You know, I look at MIT where I sit on the board, Ashley, 47% of MIT engineers are women. Wow. And so Caltech, Georgia Tech, they're all 30, 35% women. So women are really doing extraordinarily well. So we have to find a way to deploy them in the workforce, but keep them in the workforce. Women leave for several reasons. One, They don't know how to balance motherhood and and the job, and we haven't made it easy for them. Second, they're just tired of things like unconscious bias in the workplace, the fact that uh, there's no pay parity many times. And so I think we have to remove all of these barriers that exist in the workplace. So women don't see their uh, confidence being stripped through things like unconscious bias. And once you strip confidence, it strips their competence. So we have to make sure the workplace is friendly to both men and women. It's friendly to the best talent, not just friendly to the definition of the ideal worker of the past, who happens to be a man, but the ideal worker of the future is just a talented person. It doesn't matter what gender they are or what ethnicity or color. So we have to start thinking in very different ways. Uh, And so if we did that, I think we would keep more women in the workforce, create a better environment, Create care support structures, and I think you know humanity will come back to companies. Purpose will come back to companies, and we will have a much better version of capitalism that's practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ashley, maybe you should be CEO one day. <laughs> you know, seriously?
2: No, I mean I've always aspired to to lead an organization. I think for me, I also really, if you were to ask me when I was a child, I wanted to be a mom. That's what I wanted to be. I was very set on that was my thing. I feel like I've found a nice in-between right now that really works well for my family. But I do know the sacrifices that I'm going to have to make if I continue to grow in my job and in my career. So I'm realistic about it, but I also sometimes don't want to to take that step forward just because I know the time that I have right now with my children is limited. And so Mm -hmm. I I am hopeful though, because I do feel like this conversation and more people are talking about it. Um, I, I feel like that was one of the blessings of COVID if there were any was that people are starting to recognize how challenging this is and that there need to be more pathways and supports behind getting women in the workforce.
1: But actually, Ashley, you made some great points because you're right. It's got to be allowing choice. Whoever wants to do whatever they want, if they want to balance work and motherhood, we should give them the choice to do it. If you want to be in the workforce, we should give them the choice to do it. We should give them the support structures to do it. So it's about choice. This is not about mandates. You have to work or you have to stay home. This is about enabling choice. And that's really what we're talking about.
2: I think it's kind of interesting in your book, you talk about the flexibility stigma, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that is a challenge for women in the workforce. And, you know, sometimes I wish men recognized all the challenges that women are facing and and when we're trying to work and how we're getting things done that, yes, sometimes we might require some more flexibility, um, but that doesn't mean we're going to do a a bad job. We'll probably double it,
1: (laughs) but that's pressure again. Well, you're right, because I'm worried that if the rules of the company are whoever wants to come in, come in, whoever wants to work from home, do it. It shouldn't end up with a situation where all the men come to work and all the women work flexibly, in which case you are creating two classes of citizens. Now, we're all in the early days of deciding what the future of work is going to be. I hope it's more rule-based, which says, this group comes in two days a week and this group comes in three days a week the next time. So I hope it's more rule-based so no group feels like they were separated into those that went to the office and were visible versus those that worked remotely. I worry about this a lot. Yeah.
0: You know, the two skills, Indra, that are so critical today for successful leaders is the ability to have empathy, the the ability Uh to collaborate. And, you know, all the research that I've seen Says that women have those skills in in spades compared to to to, to, to men, and uh, I think you know finding a way to to showcase that is going to be critical for women and men as, as as you climb the the ladder, and it's going to be hard to do that at home.
1: Yeah, and you know we're not talking about men or women; we're talking about all the talent.
0: Talent doesn't I, I, matter
1: what gender, ethnicity you are. The best talent has to be deployed for the, uh, for the future of the economy. I, I
0: like that definition. I think it's the best talent. It's not male, female. It's the best talent. And that, right. those are the people that should be uh, moving ahead and, and taking on more and more responsibility. That's right.
2: Indra, I'd really like for our female listeners to just get some advice from you about how to handle yourself in the workplace. I know I've been in situations where I've been called honey. I've had people talk over me. <laughs> I even occasionally get asked if I'm in high school. And I, I know I look young, but I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit older, so I think that's going to go away soon. But <laughs> I do have a high voice. I've been told on the phone to get my mommy when I was like 15 years old. So these things, <laughs> and these things stick with you, you know? And so I'm wondering, what advice can you give to women who are working and in these situations? How should we handle these interactions?
1: Um, I think one of the problems we have in our society is that in every part of the world, Women are either too tall or too short, too fat or too thin. They're either high-pitched or too low-pitched. It doesn't matter what you are. You're always labeled and talked about as if you are just not adequate. That's how people view women. In fact, things like if somebody delivers a breakfast covered in uh, wrap, they wait for the woman to open it. Even if the woman is the senior most executive, the men won't open it. I mean, these sorts of gender behaviors prevail even today. Um, now, you've got to find ways around it. I'll be honest with you. Um, one, you've got to let competence speak for yourself. At the end of the day, you've got to be as good, if not better, than the other people in the room. Because at the end of the day, competence is what carries the day. But let me give you a couple other survival strategies. When you see that plate of bagels or donuts in the center of the room waiting to be open and nobody's opening it, if you choose to open it, Take the plate, go out, pick yourself a donut, leave it far away and then come back in. Leave it far, far away. So if anybody else wants donuts, they've got to go and get it from there. <laughs> that way you're not you're not trying to be the person that's acting as the service person. I remember in many meetings, they would expect that I was going to write action items from the meeting, even though I was a fairly senior executive. The junior men wouldn't write the action items. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I would write the action items and put deliverable dates. And why this action item was important, but I spun it in my own way. I put in dates that I thought made sense. People would call me and say, but those were not the dates we agreed on. I said, we never agreed on any dates. That's the problem. So I gave you dates. So if you want me to write the action items, I'm going to spin it the way I think makes sense for the company. From my perspective, that was the last time they asked me to write action items. (laughs) So we all have to develop our own skills to say, okay, If you think I'm good enough to write action items, let me add value to it. So I think it's important that we develop our own survival structures. However, there is no substitute for our sisterhood. Mm -hmm. Our sisterhood has to help us uh, navigate through all of this. If we see other women being treated differently, we've got to stop and say, hey, why are you rolling your eyes when she talks? Why are you talking over her? Or somebody should say, are you waiting for the women to open the tray? They're not going to. Let's all join together and open this tray, guys. Or let's take turns, you know? We'll pick a name from a hat. That person's going to open the tray. But we need strength and numbers.
2: I'd love to ask you, Indra, you talk about competency. Do female leaders have the luxury of making mistakes? And can you give an example of an epic fail you might have had or, or, or a time when you failed? How did you come back from it?
1: You know, uh, when women leaders make mistakes, they're judged more harshly than men. And I'll also tell you that if something went wrong in PepsiCo, even in a division, they always said, Indra Nui, CEO of PepsiCo, and they uh, ascribed the blame to me. But when something went well, and if it had been from corporate, they would say it's from the division or from somebody else. So in some way or shape, the uh, mistakes always found their way to my feet. Which is okay. I I was tough enough to handle it. Uh, The thing is, exterior you have to show that you're very calm, you're resilient, and you have the courage. Inside, you're probably mad, you're churning, and it's okay to go and shut the room and uh, shut the door in the bathroom and have a good cry, because I've seen men throw things around and four-letter words just spew out. I couldn't do that because had I done that, I would have gotten a reputation I wouldn't have liked. And so I would think those four-letter words inside, but go to my bathroom and just utter it and have a good cry, put some makeup on and come back out again, looking very calm and collected. So these are all coping mechanisms. Unfortunately, women have to still operate by a different set of rules unless you want to be branded. So uh, it's how you develop your own set of coping mechanisms and who's going to be your support structure when you really need to Let go and say, you won't believe what happened to me today at work. Let me tell you. And somebody just listens to you, doesn't judge you, just gives you advice and says, calm down, this too will pass.
2: There's one question that I really just, I think our listeners would, would really benefit from. You both seem to be mentally stable and healthy individuals, at least from what I can see. I I know dad pretty well. But how did you take care of yourself and your body while it's finding time to work?
1: I think CEO jobs are very, very, very stressful. Either you have the resilience, you have the backbone, you have the courage, you have the support structures to navigate through these difficult jobs, or you should not ascend into those jobs. Because you can't come into the CEO job and then develop resilience. You come into the CEO job because you have resilience. Um, sometimes you don't even have time to take care of yourself. You don't have time to exercise. Um, you're traveling too much, so you eat all the wrong foods and you miss meals and you do all those things we say is bad for uh, you know healthy living. Um, where I feel, again, optimistic, Ashley, in today's world with more technology available, I think we can actually balance a good life, a healthy life with a stressful job. Because, you know, we can work out while we're talking. We can be on a Zoom call and work out. We can FaceTime people without having to go visit with them. And so I'm very, very optimistic of what technology is going to do to enable, um, you know, any leader who's got enormous responsibility today somehow stay healthy mentally, physically, and be healthy at work. In terms of decision making and uh, navigating through incredible environmental issues to the geopolitics, supply chains, social issues, they have to navigate through a lot. I don't know how did you manage that? Yeah, well,
0: I think it's just an enormous amount of stress. And I was in the food industry, and you know, I grew yeah. up in an industry where Colonel Sanders ate a chicken wing in every restaurant he visited mm-hmm. in that day. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm going to go and win, out the, win the franchisees over. And I ate a chicken wing and every restaurant I went into, I go into nine or 10 a day. And the next thing I know, I weigh about 235, okay? <laughs> and so I, I kind of lost the balance. And I realized that I had to, you know, get better balance on, and, and actually it led to us getting healthier foods. We got baked chicken at KFC and uh, my own personal experience, so I could start eating fresco tacos and, and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I started having products that that we could, we could uh, help balance out the life, but it was also something that our customers wanted as well. So we eliminated the veto vote by having some healthier foods for people which we needed to get at. So I had to balance that. But I've always tried to work out every day, find time in the morning. That was very important for me to get my workout in and stay balanced by having quiet time, you know, prayer, just meditation. Uh, That would help me get my mood elevator up so I could go to work and be semi-tolerable to work with.
2: (laughs) In your book, Indra, you talk about a lot of the male advocates and mentors you had. And dad, I know you had the same throughout your career um, Indra, I know for you, that had to be interesting to have a male mentors take such interest in you and, and help you to continue in your journey up the corporate ladder. But what advice would you give to men and women in leadership positions about ways to advocate for each other, um, especially how can, how can men advocate for women and minorities in their organization?
1: I think you should mentor somebody because you see something in them. It's a real talent. And you think that with a little bit of help, they can go far and contribute massively to the company or the world in general. Uh, you know, somebody goes to somebody and says, will you be my mentor? Doesn't mean anything. Mentors pick you. And mentors should pick people, irrespective of gender or ethnicity, they should pick the best talented. Keep. I keep coming back to this. Pick the best talent. Pick, pick the best people you think are gonna do great for your entity or for the country or society as a whole. That's how my mentors picked me. And they were not just mentors. They were supporters, they were promoters, and they were also my biggest critics. When things didn't go right, boy, did they tell me off. Uh And so I think that I benefited from that, but as a mentee, my responsibility was to the mentor, was to listen to them. If I didn't listen to them and didn't take their advice, I'd go back and tell them why I didn't take it. So it was a mutual uh, respect for each other, and I treated all my mentors with great respect. I think that's what people forget. A mentor means they're investing time and effort in you. Treat them with respect. Always give them feedback about why you, not feedback, tell them why you didn't do what they suggested you do. Keep that avenue of communication open. And if you did that, you will find it's a more productive mentor-mentee relationship.
0: You know, I think being a mentor, uh, I agree you want to mentor the, the, the special talent but I think one of the things that is your CEO or your high level of the organization, there are special talent out there. And if you can focus it and, you know, all things being equal, I tried to focus on finding the female that I thought that was going to grow finding the, you know, the, the black person that I thought that really had the, the potential to, to go forward because, you know, one of the things that I realized over time is that when you have, you know, minorities moving up the organization it's amazing how many people they take with them. It's mm-hmm. amazing how many, you know, like we had uh, one person run operations who, who was black. All of a sudden we had some fantastic black operators in our company that moved up and took on more and more responsibility. So I, I always, I really, I have to tell you, I was biased uh, in terms of how I would spend my mentoring time so mm-hmm. that it would be focused on, on minorities. Because I thought that's that would give us the biggest payoff in terms of making an improvement in an area that I knew we had to get better at.
1: No, David, I think you did a very, very good job in that. But your point is very well taken in that when you elevate people who you know, never got to these positions of power, now people look up to them as role models and say, I took and get there. And the environment changes because people now learn how to work with diverse people. And they no longer exhibit the kinds of behaviors that felt a little bit awkward in the past. So you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you did what you did because you're known in the industry for having mentored great diverse talent.
2: Another question that I had was, and and this might be a chicken and egg situation, but just hear me out here. Do women need to ask for things or do men need to notice that women need them? Things like a pay raise, more flexibility, parental leave. What advice would you give our male and female listeners?
1: You know, this is why we have human resources departments. (laughs) You know, a woman should never have to ask for pay parity. Human resources should be looking at every job all the time and saying, hey, there's a man and a woman in the same job. Why is the woman getting paid 5% less? First of all, when the woman finds out, it may be too late. Okay, so my point is we have to go back and ask the human resources functions. What is your job? Your job is to hire, train, develop, retain the best talent. As part of retention, it's paying them the right wages. Parity with the men for the same job. Nobody should be discriminated against because of their gender. And nobody should get an edge because they represent the ideal worker of the past, and the new ideal worker gets treated differently. Don't do that. So I think that the time has come for us to hold HR functions responsible, and HR functions sometimes mirror the CEO's thinking. Boards have to make sure the tone at the top is right, and they should put CEOs in jobs who take this issue very, very seriously and look at it on an annual basis to say, "Are we treating all our employees fairly?" And I think this is something that, you know, is a skill that some companies do very well at; other companies. Don't. The time has come to take this very seriously.
0: You know, I agree with you. And, and, you know, I always viewed, I know I was a CEO, but I always viewed myself as a chief people officer. I I felt like I was in charge of talent. I was in charge of the work environment. And that if we created the special place to work Mm -hmm. where people felt valued, it was going to be because I was going to make that my top priority. And I find all the great CEOs I talk to, they, they do that. But you have to have an advocate. You have to have an HR Uh, leader who can who can really carry the ball for you and make sure that happens if nothing would make me matter then if i would see a high talent female you know who's doing a job better than the male and she's making 10 percent less i mean i would get ripped you know we'd have our people planning processes when that happened i would go nuts but you know it's funny how people it's okay as long as it's not you okay you know, yeah. if you're the one that's getting, you know, discriminated against on the pay or whatever, then that's a problem. Yeah. OK, but you've got to yeah. have people really have their antenna up to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I have to tell you, I think a lot of leaders and a lot of HR people are tone deaf. You know, they they, they, they just don't get it. But I think this is where the
1: change has to happen, David. Change has to happen. But I'll be honest with you, Ashley, before this change happens, if a female notices that her pay is not parity to somebody else doing the same job, you have to ask for it. There's no question about it. You have to, because if the HR department is not going to sensitize everybody, we've got to sensitize people ourselves, okay? But remember, when you ask for it, you have to make sure you get it if you don't, that creates a different sort of a cloud for you and for the company. So I would come back and say HR departments have to step up to the plate.
0: How did you, Andrew, get over it? I I, I read your book. And, you know, you found out you that, you know, some people like myself, OK, you know, got <laughs> a ton of options. You didn't get the options. How did you cope with that? I mean, because I'll tell you, that's the thing that always I never really cared about money. I've never cared about money. Money came to me. The only thing I was was competitive. Okay, so I kind of said, if this per- if Indra knew he's getting this, then I'm going to get this. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and you know, how did you cope with the fact that you found out these guys were making a lot more money than you?
1: You know, until Steve Reineman became CEO. Okay, when he just adjusted everything. I mean, he was just a great guy. That way, he said, I can't believe that your pay is not at this level. He gave me a big raise, lots of options. Until then, um, I was just happy to be in the room. And uh, most of the problems are because of my cultural upbringing, strictly my cultural upbringing, which basically said, just do the job and shut up. Mm-hmm. And the money I was making, David, was more than I've ever seen. So I never asked for it. And I knew everybody was getting options like you won't believe it. And you remember those days I was doing the spin-off of restaurants, all of those uh, food service. Thank you very much. Casual dining properties. <laughs> and also spinning off the bottlers, buying Tropicana. I mean, I was working 24-7 with little babies. And I would always be surprised that, um, you know, I wasn't getting those options. But at that point, I said, you know what? I was making more money than I've ever seen. And I was the only one of its kind in those halls of power. And I was not comfortable asking for money. I was just not, which I, right now in retrospect, it was a mistake, but I was just not there. Later on, uh, I made sure that never happened to people around me. Good.
2: I'm curious as you talk about the human resource function and some of the, the changes you would make, is there anything if you went back to PepsiCo to be CEO or dad, if you went back to Yum Brands to be CEO, is there anything that you would do differently or is there a particular focus that you would put on that function for the future?
1: I would basically say, let's put uh, women, family builders and families in the center of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Even if we didn't have COVID, we should have started the discussions on what support structures are we gonna provide. Just like David, we had on-site and near-site childcare for a lot of PepsiCo facilities. But you know, for the factory workers, we didn't have that much support. If I would stayed around, I would have thought about how to cooperate with other factories in a particular area and provide childcare for factory workers. And so I think the discussions would have advanced a lot more on providing support to families to be able to juggle work and family and somehow not carry the guilt of work at home and home at work. Mm -hmm. So I'd have worked on that. I don't know, David, what would you have done?
0: Well, you know, I think uh, I would have to do what i think a lot is happening right now at young branch you know i I, i'm so pleased that we have 12 weeks of baby bonding you know I, Mm -hmm. i think that is just like and that the you get four weeks you know right out the door and the thing that i was really excited about a four weeks vacation since you start the thing i was really excited about is that our restaurant general managers also get that 12 weeks of baby bonding or close to it you know in the old yeah. days, it was just the headquarter people and not necessarily the people in the factories and on the front line. And so I think, you know, spreading it, you know, spreading this care, spreading the fact that everybody needs it at every level of the organization, I think is something I would work on. And the other thing is, yeah. is I found it very interesting, Indra, you know, when we were spun off from PepsiCo, I went to go see Roger and Enrico, and I remember it was on Martin Luther King Day and I, I... I made this presentation on why I should run the company, et cetera, you know. But I remember walking up those steps at PepsiCo and I was on the cobblestones. And I was, God, man, <laughs> oh, this is the greatest place. This is so beautiful. These, I love these cobblestones. I'm walking up. I'm thinking it's great. And then I read in your book, okay, that you got rid of the cobblestones. and And I thought uh-huh. it was a great thing for me to say, okay, if I was going to go back, what would I do? you know, I think I'd be more empathetic because tell everybody why you got rid of the cobblestones and I thought were so wonderful. I think it's a great male-female yeah, thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, you know, in PepsiCo, we did put in 12 weeks of maternity, paternity leave, flexible work hours, on-site, near-site, childcare, adoption benefits. So we really did everything right for families. But on the cobblestones, you know, anybody with heels always got the heels caught in the cobblestone. So women would tiptoe. Whatever heel it was. But men also said their shoes would get scuffed in the cobblestones. Bob Morrison used to talk about it all the time. And expensive shoes would be gone in a while. So you walked in with sneakers and changed into heels. My point is why? Why do you need to have cobblestones in a female-friendly company? So guess what? We're going to change the cobblestones. So I kept the cobblestones on the side, changed the walkway into a flat stone that looked architecturally good. Now, Don Kendall, who put those cobblestones in and was very proud of it, saw that and he freaked out. He said, who messed up my cobblestones? (laughs) He went to Roger and he started to say, who the hell touched my cobblestones? And Roger goes, not me. It's that Indra. You know how she is. She did it. (laughs) But you know what? Don never came and talked to me about it. Never did. But his wife, Bim, wrote me a letter saying, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, well, well, that's great. And, <laughs> and I
0: think it's a great story because, you know, there are a lot of things that you just don't, you, you don't know, or you don't, you don't sense. And, and, you know, that was a great story for me. And it made me think that if I was going to go back and see, I would try to look for those kind of signals, be even more aware of them and, and do whatever I could within the company to, 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 to make our place as family friendly and female friendly as possible.
2: I just have a, a question about women like re-entering the workforce, mm. like Brenda Barnes is a great example of someone who, who left her job at, as president of PepsiCo, then came back as CEO of Sara Lee, right? Yep. So w- what can companies be doing to make it easier for women to come back if they left? Because there's so much knowledge, so much experience, you know, um, how do we get them back in the workforce?
1: So uh, there used to be something called the mommy track. So it was an on-ramp and an off-ramp. That's it. You left. And if you wanted to come back, it was tough. Now people are actually talking about a return ramp because they're realizing that the women who stepped out of the workforce, extraordinarily well-educated, very smart. And just because they went off to have kids doesn't mean they shouldn't be back in the workforce. And in fact, they became even better at organization and juggling when they went off to have the kids. So most companies now, including banks, the big investment banks are saying, how do we create a return ramp for all of these women or men who choose to take time off to be with their families to somehow come back to to the job? Now, there are two things to think about there. If you're willing to come back with a different cohort, meaning let's say you went in and you were class of 19, I'm let's say you were class of 2015. When you stepped out, you might come back and be in the same cohort group as the class of 2020. You should feel okay about it, that's one. Second, companies can do another thing. They can keep you connected to the company while you're gone. Send you little reading packages, send you material to keep up to date on the company so you're not completely out of all the developments. That way when you come back, you feel somewhat connected to the company and you can pick up where you left off. But if you wanna go to some other company, that's also an option. I think in the next two years, ready to return initiatives are going to be the normal. We have a talent shortage in the country and we have so much talent is just figuring out a way to bring them in and retain them in the workforce.
2: Real quick, you have to do this really fast because we don't have a lot of time. Favorite family meal?
1: When we sit down and have breakfast on the weekends, Mm -hmm. I make the Indian breakfast and they all eat it. Dad's pancakes.
2: Beautiful. Best gift you ever received from your child or spouse?
1: When they wrote me letters telling me how special I was, mostly for my children, because they're very expressive and they draw pictures and put stickers with it and I've kept all those notes.
0: It has to be the the letters you write me every birthday uh, and Father's Day.
2: Favorite picture of your family, can you describe it?
1: Um, the most favorite picture is my two kids in their school uniforms and Raj and I standing next to them, waiting for the school bus to come and pick them up.
0: It's not one picture. It's, it's our family wall that we have. It's, it's when you walk in and you see how you've just basically grown up as a child and how we've grown up as a family together and all those family pictures together.
1: It's that collage.
2: Favorite children's book.
1: Oh, was it the saggy, baggy elephant? <laughs> I read it for the kids so many times. That one and Winnie the Pooh and the honey tree. Those are the two. My God, we still sing Winnie the Pooh at home all the time.
0: Go, dog, go. Has to be. Yeah,
2: beautiful. What's the best advice you ever received from your grandparents?
1: My grandfather told me that if you're not a lifelong learner, you will atrophy. So he said, doesn't matter if you're 70 or 80 or 90. You have to remain a lifelong learner. So keep thinking you're back in school and keep your brain sharp.
0: That's a tough one because my grandfather's passed uh, early in my life, but my my grandmother's uh, uh, taught me to play hard and play fair in cards.
2: (laughs) That's true. Great. Thank you. I'd love to end with a final question to both of you. Can women and men have it all when it comes to family, work and life? What hope can you give us?
1: We have to define what is having it all. What does it mean? If you want to have a great job, a productive marriage, and great kids, and somehow you know, remain sane through it, to me, that's eminently possible today with all the technology and the culture and companies changing and with so many entrepreneurial options available for both men and women in our economy today. So I'm very optimistic.
0: I'm I'm very optimistic as well. You know, I've just written this book called Take Charge of You: How Self-Coaching Can Transform Your Life and Career. And Ender was very nice to endorse it by the way. But you know, I think the only way you can have it all is you really self-coach your way through it. You got to understand what your priorities are, what really gives you joy. You have to ask yourself some key questions along the way so that you keep those things in, in in balance. And then, you know, I think you've got to develop an action plan that allows you to live your life around the priorities and the values that you've set. And I think if you do that, you can have it all. And I also know that I need to give myself a little bit of self-coaching here. You know, it's time for us to, to, to wrap this up. So, Ashley, thank you very much for doing this interview. I I know you like podcasting, but you're not going to take over my show. You're going to have to come up with your own.
2: (laughs) Sounds sounds like a plan, dad. Thank you, dad. And thank you, Indra. It's been such an insightful conversation and one that I have a lot of takeaways to walk home with. I just uh, really, really love your book. It's absolutely wonderful. So everyone who's listening, go out and buy it today. It is so important for us females to have someone like you to look up to. And thank you for setting such an incredible example and for using your next set in life to um, really drive this message about family and work, home. It's an important conversation and I hope it continues.
1: Thank you, Ashley. You were fantastic. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And I look forward to seeing you in person. David, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity.
0: Thank you, Andrew We appreciate you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to How Leaders Lead with David Novak. Check out our other episodes and make sure to rate us and write a review. And for more information on how to become the best leader you can be, Check out DavidNovakleadership.com and follow me on Twitter at David Novak